Welcome to session number five of our 13-part series called Heaven, Hail, and Three Questions. Let's, uh, we'll open in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our health so we can get out and be here tonight and share together, encourage one another in the Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures. And Father, uh, we need you. Now more than ever, we need you. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need your hope. We need your perseverance. We need the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of these attributes that you offer us through the Holy Spirit, we need now more than ever in this generation. So Lord, bless our time together, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. This will be our last session on heaven in this series. I told you there'd be five sessions specifically on heaven. And I'm not going to stop talking about heaven. I'm just going to stop thinking. Uh, I'm just going to stop. I'm not going to call it 6, 7, and 8, and 9, and 10. We'll keep talking about it, but it'll be in a different format. And let me just say heaven's coming. And how comforting after going through four of these sessions, and if you've been paying attention, and you have got your eyes set on things above, and your heart set on things above, how comforting is it to know that it's closer today than it was yesterday? It's approaching at rapid speed. So let's start out with the scripture we've been using in all these sessions, Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, your heart and your mind are focused in the direction in which you are going. So it's that thing I talked about a couple weeks ago. If you, what you're looking at is what you, where you're going to end up. And if you're looking toward heaven, you're going you're gonna to find your way toward heaven. But if you, let, but if you get your eyes off of heaven... And it starts looking at this world. Guess what? You're going to be in the ditch. You're going to find yourself not where you had intended to be. Because your eyes are directional. They are directional to the outcome of your body. So uh, why is this so important? When I stop thinking about heaven, I get distracted. And I start looking at this earth as the main event. When the truth says heaven is the main event. Let me prove it to you. Um, I'm 67 years old, and um, I'm looking for heaven. Where will most of my existence be? In fact, after a million years, the 67 years of earth won't even show up on a graph. You won't be able to see it on the graph. It'll be so small on the graph of heaven and earth it, that it'll be insignificant. And, and heaven is the main event. What we're experiencing now seems like the main event. But that's the deception. That, that's when Satan gets you. Is he gets you hooked on the temporary when, he's, when God's got for you a permanent. Um, the biggest attraction in heaven is God. And I know a lot of people think, well... 
There's no more tears. There's no more pain. There's no more ambulances, no hospitals. There's no, no, no. Uh, Max Licato in one of his books said, it's the land of no more. And, and I like the way he talks about that. But the fact is, as much as that's going to be great, the no mores, that won't be the big event. The big event is the biggest attraction in heaven is God. That doesn't mean, all of this doesn't mean we should walk around with our heads pointed toward the sky. It means we understand this spiritual truth that I shared. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking at the baccalaureate of both of my uh, older children, Chad and Audrey. Uh, Michael was homeschooled, so that we didn't have a baccalaureate. They both, uh, Chad and Audrey, both graduated from Anderson County High School, even though they both spent most of their time at the Christian Academy. They went to high school and graduated from the public high school, and I was invited to speak at their baccalaureate service, and, and I spoke the same thing at both. And if I had a chance to do it again, I'd do it again. Same topic. And the topic was this, um, and, and I elaborated, but, but here's the topic that I would give high school seniors today, like I did my children back in the day. We are spiritual beings that happen to have some physical needs. And the entire part of your life, from birth to high school graduation, you were taught the opposite. You are taught upside-down thinking. Our education system, our world, teaches the opposite of the truth. The truth is, I am a spiritual being. You are a spiritual being that happens to have some physical needs. But the world turns it over and says, you're a physical being that happens to have some spiritual needs. That's why the world says, well, can't you just keep your religion in that Sunday morning window, maybe between 10 and noon? Because that, that's how they see life. When we see life as the opposite, that we're spiritual beings all the time. We've got physical needs. Of course we do. But that's not the main priority. Um, I love how C.S. Lewis writes it in his book. He says, you do not have a soul. And he would pause. Because you think, what? What? You do not have a soul. And then he would say, you have a body. You are a soul. You are a soul. Um, and, and let me put it like this. This is probably the best way to explain it. Spirits don't die. Spirits don't die. You are a spirit inside of a physical body. And does the world teach you that? Nope. This teaches you that. So you would travel your entire lifetime in the wrong worldview apart from Christ, apart from the church, apart from the message. So here's how Jesus puts it. Now, I'm going to wrap it all in, uh, in Jesus' teaching. And he, Jesus says, and why do you worry about your clothes? Why, why do you worry about this physical stuff all the time? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how, uh, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Now, the faith now tips us over out of the physical into the spiritual, right? You little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? That's physical. What shall we drink? That's physical. What shall we wear? That's physical, 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 right? Why do you keep focusing on the physical? For the pagans run after the physical. They run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need physical things. He knows. But seek first. So what, what's the recalibration of the human life? Seek first the kingdom. What's he saying? Seek first the spiritual, not the physical. Seek first the, the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these physical things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And all God's people said amen. amen. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't be trying to figure out how you're going to deal with the trouble that's coming next Tuesday. Because guess what? Today will keep you busy. What shall we eat, drink, and wear? Many people spend their entire existence on earth focusing on three things. And they won't say it out loud, but that's their whole life. Three things. Eat, drink, and wear. Pagans. That's what Jesus calls them. Pagans. That's what pagans spend their life achieving. Eat, drink, and wear. How much can I eat? How much can I drink? And what new can I get to put on me? You need to eat. You need to drink. And you need to put on clothes. But notice that Jesus says the pagans run after. This is their pursuit in life. The purpose of life is to sustain, eat, drink, and wear. And they never think for a moment that this, this thing, this tent that I'm eating and drinking and wearing is going to one day be put away. It's going to be thrown away. What we need to be running after is his kingdom. Heaven. That's this part five. The eternal, not the temporary. God knows you have physical needs. You know why? Because he gave you every one of those. He gave you those physical needs, and it's what makes you and I human. Our physical needs reflect our humanity. They make us human. But you are not a physical being that happens to have some spiritual needs. You are a spiritual being that happens to have some physical needs. You'll need to eat, and you'll need to drink, and you'll need to put on clothes. Now, that brings us to heaven part five. Last session, last week, we asked six questions about heaven from Randy Alcorn's book. Number one, will you be you in heaven? If you're not you in heaven, you didn't go to heaven. Somebody else used your body and went to heaven. So the answer is yes. Will you become angels? Will we become angels when we get to heaven? Nope. Will they call me Terry in heaven? Will we really be perfect, morally perfect in heaven? Will, what will that glorious body be like in heaven? 
And will we eat in heaven? That was the seven, uh, the six questions we dealt with last week. Tonight we're going to go seven more. Here's the first one. Will we be male and female in heaven? This question kind of goes along with my first question in the last session. Will you be you in heaven? There are many that have an idea that when we get our glorified body, we'll lose our male or female condition. We'll be, <coughs> excuse me, we'll either be both or neither or blended. I've actually heard people say that. No, I do not think that's true. In fact, that seems to be a modern work of Satan in our present world. Part of the delusion of Satan is the attack of the plan of God for they to be created male and female in their uniqueness of each. You will be you in heaven. God made us male and female on purpose, and it was good. Adam and Eve were male and female before the curse. Anybody think about that? The curse wasn't male and femaleness. The curse was totally separate. They were male and female in their created condition before sin ever came to the earth. It wasn't an afterthought. Male and femaleness was not an afterthought. Some people use this Galatian scripture to make their point about gender neutrality in the, the eternal body. Galatians 3 says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in or with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and here it comes, male nor female. For all of you are one you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, <coughs> excuse me, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, now this, <coughs> this text, this is not a reference to your eternal body in heaven, but a reference to the fact that your salvation is not based on your gender. It's not based on your bloodline. It's not based on your nationality. It's got nothing to do with your male or femaleness in the eternal kingdom. It's that salvation is putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not being a man or a woman, a Jew or a Gentile, or from America or from Israel. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That's all that's going to matter. Um, was Jesus genderless after the resurrection? No. He was a man. He was still a man. The resurrection didn't change his gender, so it's preposterous, the idea that there's no male or female. I am a man. That's who I am. That fact defines me. Uh, I didn't decide to be a man. I came out a man. I am a man. I plan to continue to be a man. Hallelujah. God decided. It is delusional. Yes, I said that. To believe that you can change your gender now or that you can change your gender or that your gender will change because you got to heaven. It defines who we are. Men and women are different. And if that surprises any of you today, you need to wake up. 
We are different. We're created uniquely different from each other. That's not an accident. It is a design by God himself. You will be you in heaven, and I believe that includes your male-female identity, which makes you you. And I will say it again. I believe that the current attack on gender that's happening in the world is demonic. It is demonic. It is an evil spirit uh, that has come out of the darkness of, of the, the spiritual realm that opposes God. And it has manifested itself in, in people. Let me, let me put it like this. Jesus tells a story of a man who has, uh, he has a spirit. Evidently, it's an evil spirit. And somehow, it doesn't say in Jesus' story how the spirit leaves, but the spirit leaves. And the man is now without the evil spirit, and he cleans and sweeps up himself and cleans up his house, and the evil spirit goes into waterless places. It leaves. But the evil spirit recognizes that the man's tent, body, is vacant. He hasn't put in the Holy Spirit. So now he's just vacant of spirit, not the Holy Spirit. So here, here's what Jesus says. So that evil spirit, seeing that that man's house is vacant, goes and gets seven more evil spirits worse than himself, and he comes back inside of him. And Jesus says the man is worse off in the end than he was in the beginning. He's way worse now. So what's the point of Jesus' story? You're going to be possessed by a spirit. It'll be the spirit of Christ or it'll be the spirit of Antichrist. But you're going to be possessed. And when I say possessed, owned by a spirit. You might say, I'm neutral. <laughs> then seven more will come. You're not neutral. So when I, when I say that, what's happening in America today, and it's not just America, but it's coming out of America, this genderless nightmare is, is a seven-time demonic spirit. It is, it is devoid of the Holy Spirit. So now what's coming is worse than anything they've ever known before. Because there's no way... And I'm careful when I say that. It, it's so dark that the light can, cannot any longer influence it. It's turned over in Romans 1 to a depraved mind. Unable, unable to ever be able to reason again. Number two. Will we wear clothes in heaven? I certainly hope so. <laughs> My Palm Sunday sermon, which I've been working on. I just almost got it finished today. My Palm Sunday sermon uh, is interesting based on this question, will we wear clothes in heaven? My Palm Sunday sermon is titled, Fig Leaves Won't Work. The Bible says Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. Now I must tell you today that I will surely have to get a major glorified body to stand in front of you naked and feel no shame. <laughs> it better be a one big glorified body, that's all I can tell you. I'm going to comfort some of you with this point. When heaven is opened in Revelation, they are wearing clothes. 
Praise God, hallelujah. <laughs> Woo, I'm happy about that. Revelation 3, 4. Jesus says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. It looks like there's some kind of a wrap in there. Uh, Revelation 6, 11. Then each of them was given a white robe. Hallelujah. And they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I didn't put this one in there, but I thought about it afterwards. In Laodicea, the last of the seven churches of Revelation, Jesus said, I, I, you say you're rich and do not need a thing, but I say to you, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy white garments to cover your shameful nakedness. White garments, cover yourself, cover your, cover your nakedness. So, will we wear clothes in heaven? Sure looks like it. Number three, will we rest in heaven? God rested on the seventh day of creation, not because he was tired. That's not the kind of rest that that was referring to, but because he stopped creating. Rest was to stop that which you were doing. Stop it. Stop. To come to a condition of rest is to stop. I believe the millennial kingdom of Christ will be like heaven on earth. A thousand years of rest. A thousand years of the Sabbath. In fact, that's one of the things that I believe God revealed to me some time ago that the idea, remember when we went through this last session, actually the last couple of root sessions, is uh, 2,000, 2,000, 2,000, and 1,000. And if, you, you, if you're looking at me like that, you'll never figure it out. So. But if there was 2,000 years, Abraham, to uh, Adam to Abraham, and 2,000 years, Ab Abraham, to Jesus, and 2,000 years from Jesus to us and the rapture of the church, that's two, two, two. There's the six days of creation, a day unto the Lord's like a 1,000 years, 1,000 years like a day. What follows that? The Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? Jesus says he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. He will bring rest. He will bring a Sabbath rest to the earth. Now, it certainly looks like that's the plan of God. You know what the problem with that is? Nobody knows when he started counting. <laughs> so we don't know when the numbers started counting. So that means you've got to hang in there like the rest of us. In the law, God set aside days and weeks for resting. He even rested the earth itself every seventh year. So isn't it logical that if he put the earth into a jubilee rest, that he would put us into a rest in the eternal kingdom, a, a time in which you just stopped and enjoyed him, focused on him? One of the things I really look forward to about heaven is rest. And the older I get, the more I think that's going to be wonderful. Let me read why I say that. Hebrews 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you are found to have fallen short of that rest. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, and the message they heard, who's they? Ancient Israel. The message they heard was of no value to them. Why? Because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. 
Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. What does that mean? That's heaven. That's heaven. They're never, you're never going to enter my rest. And that's heavy. You know, that, that's, that's a declaration of their eternal lost condition. They shall never enter my rest. Why? <coughs> Why? They didn't combine it with faith. They didn't combine it with faith. They didn't combine it with, they knew about God, but they had no faith in God. They didn't combine it with faith. What's the best example of that from the Hebrew history? They, they go into the wilderness and God says, I promise you the promised land, it's yours, just go, I'll fight for you, just go take it. And they wouldn't do it. Why? They're giants. They'll, they'll, we can't beat them. They didn't combine it with faith. So what could the church learn today? He's promised you the promised land. But you're living in the wilderness. And we got giants all around us. And what some of the people in the church do? They didn't combine it with faith. Right? They didn't combine it with faith. That he's promised. You're, you're in a covenant relationship with him. So don't, don't turn around and look back toward Egypt when you're this close to the promised land. They shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all of his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. He's making a big point of this. It still remains that some will enter that rest. Some will. By the way, this is Hebrews. This is the church age. Some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later, he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day of rest. There remains then, here we go, church, this is us. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Somebody say hallelujah. What do you think that is? There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his own work. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example, Israel's example of disobedience. Notice verse 11 again. Let us make every effort to enter that rest. Faithful service to our King Jesus may mean, are you ready? Hard work now. Faith is hard work. We are not saved by works, but I want to say something. Faith is hard work. If anybody's tells you, ever told you anything different than that, they're lying to you. Faith is hard work. Let me give you an example. 
Uh, one of my favorite authors, Henry Blackaby, wrote that study, Experiencing God. Uh, life-changing study for so many people. And Henry Blackaby talks about this idea that uh, it's a crisis of belief moment when faith is manifest in a person's life. And here's what, how he describes it. He says, you're walking down a road, God takes you down this road, and he, he either allows it or puts this intersection in front of you. You can go right or you can go left. And, and going right goes toward God. Going left goes away from God. You can't go back. You can't go forward. You're going to go right or left. You got two choices. Henry Blackaby calls it a crisis of belief because in the moment, in the moment, the turn toward God is always the hardest of the two choices. Faith is hard. But it provides a rest after afterwards. But it's hard. And if I look at the world we live in today, why would I say faith is hard? Because everybody's going the other way. And you, you've got to be willing to go against the world. Because using the illustration that, that the world's going this way, and, and you're standing here and you're watching them all go that way, you know, billions of people and they're all going this way, and Jesus says, follow me, and, and that means you've got to go this way. And it feels uncomfortable going this way when everybody else is going that way. Because we're kind of like get-along people. We like to get along. But everybody's going that way. But I've got to go this way. Faith is hard. You're going against the flow. You're going against the crowd. You're going against the world. But that's where the rest is at. The rest is here. There's not going to be a rest over here. You've got to go this way. Faith is hard. And what does he say? Um... Let us make every effort to enter that rest. Faithful service to King Jesus means hard work now. Faith is hard work, but rest is coming. Rest is coming. That'd be our next t-shirt. Rest is coming. Listen how Jesus describes it. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. I don't know about you, but I I'm spiritually weary. I could sit here and act like I'm not, but I am. I'm spiritually weary. I've been fighting this fight for a long time. And uh, sometimes I get weary. And, and if I use Jesus' language, a heavy burden. I feel the weight of the church. I do. I feel the weight of the culture pressing on me. I feel the weight of this demonic power that I believe has significantly increased since October 7th. I feel the weight of that. I do. I think our staff feels the weight of it. Our elders feel the weight of that. And, and you can grow weary in that. I'm not weary to the point of quitting. It's nothing like that. It's, I feel, I feel that. I long for heaven. I long for rest. I do. Um, Revelation 14, 13. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, for they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. Now, now listen, this, I'm not saying that I want to die. I'm not saying that you should want to die. But look at what he just said. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This is during the tribulation. Because, why, why? Why would you say blessed? Because they're dead. They found rest. And their labors that hard work of faith followed them into the kingdom. 
It followed them. Look, listen to what he says. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will, be, will follow them. And, and I, you know what I picture? Jesus on the cross. Three words in English anyway. It is finished. It's finished. I'm done. I can rest from my labors. It is finished. You know what? If you're in Christ and the Lord tarries, you're, you're going to have an it is finished moment in which you'll find rest. That's our goal, right? That's it. That's it. This is the plan. Will we sleep in heaven? Number four. Some people argue that you won't need to sleep in heaven because we'll have glorified perfect bodies and they won't get tired. I've always connected rest with sleep. Uh, I'm not saying that that's correct. Uh, I remember when I was young, I, I, I never wanted to go to bed. Some of y'all remember that? Never. I was the guy who, kid, never wanted to go to bed. I had to fight my parents all the time. Now I'd pay good money for a power nap. <laughs> Man, has things changed. Sleep to me is one of life's pleasures. Uh, and I am blessed. Let me, let me say this. My wife kind of is amazed at this too. I am blessed for two points. Number one, I can go to sleep in about 12 seconds. My wife, she's still amazed that I can do that. Number two, uh, for the most part, I sleep all day long. Uh, maybe I get up one time, but I, I sleep good. Uh, with, when I say I've got all these burdens and I feel the pressure of this demonic realm and the weight of a church with, you know, close to 2,000 people, um, I sleep like a baby. And, and I feel like that's a blessing. You know, and I give, I give praise, glory, and honor to God for that. Um, I believe sleep is one of our pleasures that God gives us. Rest. Even, even in the time of spiritual warfare. Sleeplessness. Let me, let me give you the opposite. Sleeplessness or troubled sleep is the result of the curse. And the curse is going to be one day totally lifted. What do you think God's desire for his children are? That you go to bed at night and you can't sleep because you're, you're tormented in your mind? He doesn't want that for you. You want that for your kids? No, you don't. He wants you to have this peace that transcends human understanding. You lay your head on the pillow and you just go out and have sweet dreams or whatever. So here's the question. Did Adam and Eve sleep? I don't know. It doesn't say. I'm assuming that they did, but I don't know. The Bible says there will be no darkness in heaven. Will we sleep in the light? Do you have a hard time sleeping with the light on? I'm not sure that we won't get tired from our labor and work in heaven, but I know that rest, whether through sleep or not, will wipe away any tiredness and replace it with vibrancy in our glorified body. So to answer this question number four, Will we sleep in heaven? I don't know. Doesn't say. I, if I'm a guesser, I'd say, yeah, you will. But I don't know. Number five, will we work in heaven? Some people just can't think about having to work in heaven because their work on earth was always terrible. It was always unfulfilling. You always hated to go to work. So your idea of working in heaven is like, oh, no, not more of that. I want to think of it like this. You will get to work in heaven versus have to work in heaven. 
Was work a result of the curse or was it a sense of purpose? In the beginning. Unemployed people are not usually very happy people. Unemployed people are usually not very fulfilled people. Why? They lack purpose. In fact, I'll just say the fastest way to destroy a person, especially a man, is unemployed. You strip the purpose out of a man's life. And God created us with purpose. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Do, do you know that's before the curse? That's, that's, he, Adam loved that. God created Adam to do that. So Adam didn't wake up in the morning and say, I got to go to the garden. <laughs> Adam gets up and he says, I get to go to the garden. See the difference? I love the garden. This is my purpose, my meaning of life. Has there ever been a job that you said you would do even if you didn't get paid? That might be the job you get in heaven. I don't know. That's why I get a little aggravated with professional sports players that complain about their salaries. Most people, somebody playing baseball, so most people would do it for nothing. And they complain about it. The curse was not work. But that work would be a toil instead of purposeful pleasure. Work in itself is not the curse. Let me read that to you. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife. There's sometimes you should not listen to your wife. Sometimes you should listen to your wife. You should have the brains to know the difference. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, now, a lot of people read over that. What Adam did cursed the dirt that he came from. The curse flowed into its origin. Eve's curse flowed into Adam. Adam's curse flowed into the dirt. Eve came from Adam. Adam came from the dirt. The curse flowed all the way into its source. Cursed is the ground, but the ground, if it had a voice, would say, I didn't do anything. But you are the origin of Adam. He formed him from the dust of the earth. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam, through... So now, Adam, the laborer on the earth, and the earth, the soil by which God was going to produce food... Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It, the soil, the earth, which is now under the curse because of you, Adam, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Painful toil. That's new. That was not there before. Was work there in the garden? Yep. Were there thistles and thorns? Nope. Now work is hard. Now, now work is sweat, toil, anguish. Looking at your clock, say, is it five o'clock yet? You know, that's, that's new. That's different. 
And, and what's, what's the future? And by, by the way, what was all that? What was all that about? That's the curse, right? That's the curse. <coughs> Excuse me, Revelation 22. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will serve Him. You see, in the eternal kingdom, you're still doing what Adam did. You're still serving without the painful toil, without the thistles, without the, the sweat of the brow toil. Number six, what will our relationships be like in heaven? Christians have always longed for restored fellowship with those who have gone on before us. I believe you and I will establish new relationships in heaven, but we will also renew our former relationships as well. Is there someone you long to see again? Let's just stop for a moment. Because I know everybody in here, you, you got somebody in your mind. Is there somebody you'd really like to see again? They've, they've died, gone on. Um, boy, I do. I got somebody I'd like to see. Kind of makes me giddy to think about that moment. What it would be like to see them again. Some people falsely assume that all of our attention will be on God in heaven and none will be on relationships with others. God will be first and he desires to be first, not just in heaven, but now too. But he designed us for fellowship with each other. And I'm convinced that's one of the primary purposes of the church, that, that we don't have to go through all this by ourselves. We need fellowship. We need each other. You will know them in heaven, and you will be able to spend an eternity catching up on lost time. So those people that you in your mind right now are thinking, man, I'd like to be able to see them again. You'll have all the time you need to catch up, whatever time has been lost. The disciples recognized Jesus after the resurrection, and in fact, they ate meals together. They, they ate fish together. So if, if that's what it was between Jesus and his disciples, then we can expect something similar in the eternal kingdom. Now, I'm going to take it a step further. I don't think you'll forget names in heaven. Uh, I always, I've got this thing about uh, I have a hard time memorizing people's names. Uh, something I've always struggled with. And I think once you get up there, you won't have to say, hey, buddy. Because <laughs> you're saying buddy because you don't know it's Bobby. So, hey, buddy. Now, I'll be able to say, hey, Bobby. See, I, I just think that, that when you get this new body, that memory is not going to be a problem for you anymore. Number seven, will there be marriage in heaven? Now we're getting into good stuff. This has always been a big question. There was a group of Sadducees, and if you want to define Sadducees in the time of Jesus, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They tried to trick Jesus on this issue, so they come to him, and it's kind of a preposterous question when you know in advance they don't believe in a resurrection, and they ask you about the resurrection, you're going to think, you're trying to dupe me, right? Anyway, here's the story. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with the question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, pause for a moment. Is that in the law of Moses? Yes, it is. Absolutely, yes, that's true. If you, if, if this, if you 
if your wife, excuse me, if your brothers, uh, if your brother dies and he has not had children with his wife, you have a responsibility to go into your sister-in-law and give her children under the Jewish law. Some of y'all are going to say, yuck. <laughs> and that's okay. But that, that, I need, for you to understand the rest of this, you've got to understand that that's in the law of Moses. Why? Because God wanted them to propagate the species. I want children. God said, that I want children. Why is abortion so horrible? God wants children. He wants children. He's serious about it. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. Since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second, the third brother, right on down to the seventh. So y'all see what's happening? All seven of these brothers are dying, and this one woman, the original wife, she's still alive. Finally, the woman dies. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? And Jesus replied, you are in error because you don't know the Scriptures. Now, don't read over that. You know what he just said? These are religious. Sadducees were religious people. And they, he said, you don't even know the Scripture. Ooh, that, that, that hurt. And you don't know the Scripture, and you don't know the power of God. Now he's going to answer the question. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I read this story, if I'm getting this story, first thing I'm going to do is call the sheriff and say, check that woman's medicine cabinet. Because it's strange that all seven of these guys are dead, right? Well, that's kind of a sideline. Jesus makes it clear at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Angels don't marry in heaven, and neither will resurrected human flesh. You will not be getting married. Somebody says, what if I was married here? Will I not be married to them there? No, I don't think you will be married to them there. There's not marriage nor given in marriage. It's not complicated. Um, now, some of you might find distress in that thought, and some of you down deep without saying it out loud or saying hallelujah. <laughs> and please don't raise your hand as to which one you are. <laughs> However, I must tell you that there will be marriage in heaven. That's not a contradictory statement. We will all be part of one marriage between Christ and His bride. And I know for men, we struggle with that. Our masculine side has a hard time with this idea that, that Jesus is a bridegroom and we, males, will be in a wedding relationship, marriage relationship with Christ. The one flesh marital union we know on earth, marriage on earth, is a signpost pointing to our eventual relationship with Christ Himself. Once we reach heaven, that signpost is no longer necessary. Let me try to explain that a little deeper. Marriage appears in Genesis 3. It's Genesis 3, and, and the two shall become one. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and something happens. 
two individual unique people become one person. It's a God thing. It's what he designed. And from that, children will come. You'll propagate, you'll populate the planet. And then he comes to the church age. So fast forward 4,000 years. And here comes Jesus, comes to the church. And the apostle Paul says, the church is the wife of Jesus. And, and you think, huh? Huh? What, what's it mean? So, okay. When, when I was born again, you got Terry and you got Jesus, two unique people. And when I was born again of the water and the spirit, what happened? Two became one. Two became one. From a spiritual perspective, we got married. And the two shall become one. What was in the beginning, Adam and Eve, was only a shadow of the plan of God to become one with the church. And, and, and here's, why, here's where I want to go. In fact, I'll touch on it in a minute. Um, if, I'm, if I'm engaged, see, I haven't experienced the full wedding yet. Let's just say I'm betrothed to Christ. I'm one with Christ. I'm not making light of that. But I haven't fully experienced what it'll be like to be with Christ. I'm waiting for that. I'm, I'm, if you know me, I'm anticipating that. Now, what would it be like? So I'm engaged to the bridegroom. What would it be like if I'm a cheater between now and the wedding? And in, in, in 1 John, God speaks to the Apostle John and says, you adulterous people. What do you mean adulterous? That's sexual, right? No, it's spiritual. You adulterous people. Don't you know that, that if you love the world, you've abandoned your love for God because you can't love both of them. So, so here's the point. I'm engaged to the bridegroom. I'm supposed to be waiting for the wedding. And he's looking at me to see if I'm faithful now in the time of preparation for the final wedding event, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And if he sees me looking over at the world with lustful eyes, when my eyes are supposed to be fixed totally upon him, you know what he calls it? Adultery. It's his words, not mine. Read First John. You adulterer. You could have been in a love relationship with the living God and you're having an affair with the world. You're a cheater. You're a cheater. Now, that's how he sees it. We will all be part of one marriage between Christ and his bride. Um, our marriage with Christ in heaven will be so satisfying that I assure you it will surpass your greatest expectation of any earthly marriage. I've had a lot of <coughs> married, uh, young people about to get married, and we talk about the return of Christ. And I, I, I won't get in details, but um, somebody says, well, I, I'm longing for this, this, this young couple. And they're, they're getting ready to get married, and they say, well, I'm all in, preacher, for this return of Jesus, but I want to be married first. And I get it. You know, I do. I, I do get it. And, I, and I'm sympathetic. But, but I'm also a realist. And I've also been married for over 40 years. 
And, and the realistic thing is your best, greatest, most wonderful, highest level expectation of marriage here on this earth will not compare with what he has for you on the first day. On the first day. Because he will never fail you. And that spouse that you marry, they will. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just being truthful. And they will. So here's, let's, let's summarize and wrap this up. We could talk forever about the wonders God has planned for us in heaven and still not grasp and understand it all. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. So here's my summary. Everybody stay with me. You will be you in heaven. You won't become an angel. You'll be you and people will call you by your name. You will have a morally perfect, glorified, eternal body that will not live under a curse. You will eat at the table of the wedding feast of the Lamb and drink from the streams of living water. You will retain your identity, your gender, and your memories for those, for these define you, but you are just getting started. You'll be clothed with the white robe of righteousness and you will rest from all your burdensome labor on earth. You will serve God in an assigned task that will be more fulfilling than anything you could have ever imagined on this present earth. You will reestablish relationships with believing family, friends that have died before and make new relationships that will last for eternity. You will experience oneness with Christ in the great marriage supper of the Lamb that will surpass any oneness that you could have ever achieved on this present earth. Now, I told Jed I had a number 10 that I added this morning. It's not in your notes, but I want to give it to you because there's probably 80% of you in the room that are asking this question that Jed brought up before the service. How can I be that wonderfully blessed and happy and joyful in heaven when I know that my son or daughter is not here? Isn't that a great question? And now, now I, um, I have over the years developed my opinion answer. But I want to share it with you because I am confident in this opinion answer. It is an opinion answer. I don't do a lot of opinion answers. I do scripture. But the Bible doesn't really address this specifically. So I'll give you an opinion answer. You ready? Because here it comes. If I'm in heaven and I find out one of my children or my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister, somebody I was really close to that I really loved on the earth, and they're not there. And I know if, if, if it's me there and I've retained my identity and I've retained my memories, then I will know that they're not there. And if I know they're not there, then I'll know that they're in hell. How can I have peace in that moment? How could I possibly find joy in that moment? Because I'd keep thinking about them in hell. One of the promises of God in the eternal flesh, the eternal kingdom, is we will become like Him. So you've got to start here. You're not going to be Him, but you'll be like Him. And when you become like Him, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ will be manifest in you. Now what does that mean? Why didn't your loved one go to heaven? Because the righteousness of Christ was violated. 
the righteousness of Christ. When I say righteousness, the rightness of Christ was violated. The rightness of Christ, the rightness of God was violated. So that person didn't come to heaven, didn't make it to heaven because they did not meet the righteous requirements of God. And God's judgment is just, and God's judgment is right, and God's judgment is perfect, and God's judgment is true. Always, always, never been wrong, never been wrong, cannot be wrong in anything. So God's judgment sent that person into the darkness. And now you have put on the righteousness of Christ. Here's my question. After you have put on the righteousness of Christ, do you think you will look at God and say, that wasn't fair, that my loved one didn't make it? No. You will agree with Him. And you will conclude the only thing that He concluded. God is just. And God is perfect. And God is holy. And in that, you will find peace and joy and fulfillment. I gave you that one for free. Now do you see why God told us to set our minds and hearts on heaven instead of the earth? Of all, all these things that are awesome, but let me tell you the most awesome thing about heaven. Revelation 22. If you know anything about Revelation 22, we're talking about the new heaven and the new earth. And then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for the medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. Upon anything. No curse. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him. And they will see His face. I'm not talking about seeing your grandmother's face as much as you might look forward to that or your grandfather's or your whoever went on ahead of you. They will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for lamp or sun. For the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. And then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. And then Jesus speaks in this text, Look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Now, I want to read a quote from Randy Alcorn. If my wedding is on the calendar and I'm thinking of the person I'm going to marry, I shouldn't be an easy target for seduction. Likewise, when I've meditated on heaven, sin is terribly unappealing. It's when my mind drifts from heaven that sin seems attractive. Thinking of heaven leads inevitably to pursuing holiness. Our high tolerance for sin testifies of our failure to prepare for heaven. Let me, let me add something to that. Heaven, out of sight, out of mind. If heaven is out of sight and out of your mind, you will be prey to the seduction of the flesh and the seduction of this world. Why? 
because you're going to find yourself going where you're looking. If you're looking toward heaven, that'll be where you're going. But if you start looking toward this earth, something changes. I remember talking to Bob Russell and David Reagan. We had a conversation one day I will never forget. We all three came to this simple conclusion. I want to share it with you as we wrap up tonight. Um, the church that sincerely lives expectantly. And let me describe what I mean by that. I believe that I will see the return of Christ in my lifetime. I live my life. And those of you who know me personally, you know that that is not a, I, that is not a promo. That, that's who I am. I, I believe that I will see the return of Christ in the flesh. That he will come in my generation. That I'll be a Simeon. Simeon's that guy that saw, he said the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And he saw the Messiah eight days old in the Jerusalem temple and said, now Lord, I can go to you in peace. See, I believe, that, I believe that I will see the return of Christ in my lifetime. I'm in the ministry because I had that encounter with God that, that revealed the deliverer is coming. The deliverer is coming. So the church that sincerely lives like that, I'm just going to use that as an example, regarding the coming of Christ will always do two things. Always you will do two things. And when I say church, it can't just be Terry Cooper believes that. But when you believe that, when you believe that the imminent return of Christ, that at any moment, at any moment, there could be a trumpet and, and pow. And, and it might be tonight. And that you, you actually have adopted that worldview. And, and you live with this constant expectancy. It's like, like Lord set my face like Flynn on you, that I would not turn to the right or the left, I will never look back. On this what? This one thing, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm looking for you. When that becomes you, two things will always happen. Number one, you will purify your life from sin. And number two, you will talk to somebody around you about Jesus. Yes, you will. You won't have to work at it. It'll define your personhood. Because when you believe that you're about to meet God and that you could meet Him today, you will repent of any sin that happens to sneak into your life. Yes, you will. Don't tell me you won't because yes, you will. And number two, that person that you love around you that doesn't know Him and is not ready for Him, you'll be compelled to say something to them. Now, here's why I bring such a big deal. That was the call of the church since the first day. You see how far the church has drifted from its mission? The call of the church from the first day is you would purify your life and you would evangelize the people around you. Because you believe very soon you will meet God. That's it. This is my last thought for the night, tonight. I know who I was before Jesus. I have not forgotten. And I know who I am now. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus has raised me from the dead, and eternal separation from God in the lake of burning sulfur. He has lifted me, snatched me out of the fire. Years ago, I came across a song by Christy Knuckles. 
from at a passion conference. That song made me weep and celebrate at the same time. Here's the chorus of that song. You revive me. You revive me, Lord. As I, as I read this, I see him snatching me out of hell. He's, he's reached his scarred hands and took a hold of my collar and lifted me out of the fire of hell. You revive me. You revive me, Lord. Of, and all my deserts are rivers of joy. You are the treasure I could not afford. So I'll spend myself till I'm empty and poor. All for you. You revive me, Lord. So we're going we're gonna to do this together tonight. Get your papers out. We're going to read this together. And I just say, don't read it unless you mean it. But when you mean it, make it a proclamation tonight to God. Since then, I have been raised with Christ. I will set my heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I will set my mind on things above, not on earthly things. For I died, and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is my life, appears, then I will also appear with him in glory. Praise God. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this night, these covenant promises. Thank you, Lord, because heaven's coming, and you have redeemed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.